It is Wednesday, September 27th, and we are back for another episode of the MAD Podcast, conversations with leaders from across the machine learning, AI, and data landscape with your host, Matt Turk, partner at First Smart Capital. Today, we could not be more excited to have Shreya Rajpal, CEO and co-founder of Guardrails AI, for a discussion about the Guardrails platform, mitigating AI hallucinations, and the role fine-tuning and retrieval augmented generation play in that. As always, if you're enjoying the show, you're going to want to go ahead and hit that follow button, and we will be back every week with brand new conversations with leaders in the AI and data space. And now, here are Shreya and Matt. Shreya, welcome to the Matt Podcast. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Really excited to be here. So we are going to talk about the all-important topic of safety for the deployment of generative AI in uh, production, which feels like a particularly timely conversation as uh, people are starting to think about how you actually deploy those systems uh, for mission-critical applications in production at scale and all the things. Um, so you are the co-founder and CEO of uh, Guardrails AI, a startup that uh, aims to provide, as the name conveniently indicates, guardrails around the large language models. Um, and I'd love to start maybe with that uh, aha moment, for, for lack of a better term, when you realized you wanted to build this, uh, particularly as it relates to your background. I think I read somewhere that um, you had spent time in the world of uh, autonomous uh, vehicle. What was that? Was that the trigger? What what led you to start the company? Yeah, yeah. I think it's a. Um, I'm happy to dive deeper into that. So my background did play a key part in thinking of guardrails and in thinking of you know how what the pra- what practically it would end up looking like as these models and applications built on top of these models you know enter our enter our day to day like uh, software stack. Um, so it really started around uh, end of last year. I was um, like everybody in tech. I was very excited about you know the, the 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 coming of generative AI and especially as it relates to removing a lot of the previous barriers with doing machine learning. So um, for the longest time, you know, training the model, getting the data ready, etc., would always end up being like this key uh, you know blocker before which you could actually do and build machine learning models. And um, suddenly it seemed like you know all of those blockers. Were removed, so which was very exciting. Uh, and as I was building my own applications, I was kind of looking out to see, like, okay, what what is still challenging in this world, right? Like, what would the net new problems end up being? Um, and very quickly, I came upon the idea, like, yeah, you can build very exciting prototypes in under 10 minutes uh, that allow you to chat with your data set. But, you know, that ends up being very insufficient because it doesn't actually, uh, as a, to an end customer or to an end user, it doesn't give you value, like consistently, repeatedly, et cetera. Uh, and so, you know, it ends up being in this realm of like, yeah, it's an exciting toy. Uh, and it's very fascinating that you can get like so much leverage out of, you know, very little technological investment. Uh, but in order to like build, uh, lasting products, you would need to have much more, uh, you know, much more reliability, uh, similar to like, you you would need to be able to hold uh, applications built on top of Gen AI to the same standard that we hold like software engineering products, right? Uh, which like we, we live our lives on them. And, you know, like we need to get like Gen AI based technology to that same level. Uh, so that problem seemed like the key missing problem where like, yeah, it works, but does it work enough? And does it, you know, does it work reliably enough? Um, so I think that was the problem. And in, in terms of solutions, um, it was, uh, I'm obviously biased because I worked in self-driving, but um, the the way of like building products on top of ML seem more similar to self-driving than you would initially, you know, suspect, uh, wherein it wasn't just, here's this great model and the output of the model is the commodity by itself, uh, you know, which is what you had in like the previous generations of machine learning where you had like maybe churn prediction or something. Uh, and, you know, you do like analytics on top of that churn prediction model. Like instead, now you had this model, which was kind of this like component of like a subsystem that is drawing upon, you know, like some other uh, predictive components and like some data uh, and you're chaining a bunch of these together. And so, you know, that ends up being like a much, much more complex uh, system. Um, and in that, like errors and reliability and just um, um, 
working with the non-determinism of, of machine learning ends up being way more important. Uh, so this, this setup was very similar to self-driving, which is, you know, you kind of like take this very vast problem of self-driving, break it up into chunks and, you know, apply machine learning very strategically and, and combine it with like other systems for verification, et cetera. Um, and I wanted to kind of, you know, build uh, a framework that allows you to do something similar for uh, all of the amazing like LLM applications that we're seeing. Uh, so that was kind of some of the motivation. I think it's been pretty, uh, the the initial uh, analogy, like I thought it made a lot of sense, but it was definitely inspired. Um, but it's been great to see that as the stack has started to like mature a little bit, you know, um, as people are really thinking about like, how do we put these things into production, the trajectory of issues and concerns that people are running into are similar to, you know, like the, the path is similar to what it was in self-driving, which is, you know, how do I get like this, you know, runtime safety? How do I get like runtime constraints, et cetera? How do I make it work um, with, you know, how do I make this really flexible technology work with what I know to be true of the world? Uh, and, and making that work, I think like is, is uh, you know, that analogy ends up being like pretty powerful. So that was, you know, those two things of like my own experience uh, with self-driving as well as, you know, like building out these applications and figuring out where the gaps are. I think like that led to like this aha moment of like, okay, we need a framework like this if we were to build LLM safely. Great, great. Um, so I'd love to spend a little bit of time on the problem itself. So as 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 users, we all now are very familiar with the concept of hallucination, just using ChatGPT or other systems and uh, getting results of, of varying levels of quality, let's say. Um, but what, what what is the spectrum like in what, spectrum? What, what is the range of ways uh, generative AI can go bad? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think like hallucination is um, hallucination is the top reason that everyone thinks of. And, and it definitely is a problem. Like I work with these systems, you know, not just obviously from a from a, um, you know, from the creator of the open source and from the, you know, a founder of the company, but also like deeply as an engineer. And you do see the extent of the problem, even when the solution is like roughly right, it ends up being, you know, like actually um, it still is hallucinating like facts I never gave it. So that definitely is a problem. But outside of that, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of like implicit assumptions we make out of, you know, our existing workforce and translating those assumptions into Gen AI based systems is is unsolved to you know right now um so concretely like what some of these risks would end up looking like is you know compliance for example is a large one where um there's two failures with gen ai one is that our existing frameworks of making ai compliant within specific settings uh suddenly break down so existing for example like model risk management frameworks don't really apply when you haven't built the model yourself you know you didn't like curate the data that the model was trained on and so you can't make any claims to that right um i think the second one is that there's a lot of like other um other like um I, I guess like guarantees that you expect from for for a system to be compliant that you know you then have to impose on generative AI. Uh, so my favorite example that I like using is you know uh, if you're building a chatbot that works in financial services, then you want to make sure that the chatbot like uh, you know never misleads the customers by giving it financial advice, right? Uh, so that for example is like one of the key risk areas. Um, I think in general uh, other risk areas are around like brand risk. So um, you know if you're uh, building a chatbot that has a commercial application, uh, then making sure you're not saying anything that even if it's even if it's legal, like might end up being embarrassing to the brand uh, or might, you know, get you in the headlines the next day. Uh, you know, that is something that's completely undesirable. So um, there's also this like um, um, need that people have to kind of poke and prod these systems to get them to fail. Uh, right. <laughs> there's like people that kind of I would never do that. <laughs> yeah uh i uh we've all tried we've all tried <laughs> yeah we've all tried and it's very amusing to see like how how you get how you get there there's entire like large subreddits uh dedicated to you know okay how do you get these systems to say the most embarrassing thing um so i think like brand risk ends up being like another kind of key challenge uh there's a few other ones around like privacy security etc so people are very very concerned about like uh pii you know uh both pii going in like like leaving the organization system and going into these models, as well as, you know, these models accidentally like referring to some data that they were trained on, which has happened to me, uh, you know, in the past. And I find it like very, very funny and take 
take screenshots but don't really do anything with those screenshots <laughs> <laughs> um so i think like that ends up being another concern yeah in uh, there seems to um have been a number of early attempts at mitigating the the, the problem the you know, I've, I've spent um, like a lot of people in the space, uh, a good amount of time with our uh, vector database friends. And then this, like the whole concept of uh, RAG uh, that, um, you know, a lot of people have, have had a lot of hope uh, for. Do you want to maybe talk about what that is and what's working about it, what's not yet working about it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so RAG for, I think a lot of folks in your audience would know, but for folks that don't, RAG stands for Retrieval Augmented Generation. Uh, and it's essentially a method of building with uh, large language models so that you're not directly questioning them. You're first sub-selecting context from your organization, from your application that's helpful. Uh, in putting that context into the prompt and then, you know, like asking the LLM to answer only using the context you provided. Uh, so as an example, let's say you have like some internal documents, um, uh, let's say a standard operating procedure at your company, and then you want employees to be able to ask questions from that uh, standard operating procedure, you would first figure out like what the most relevant subsections of that SOP are, and then input that as like uh, amend so I append that SOP subsections to your prompt and then ask a question from the LLM to like answer using the subsections you provide. So that's high level, you know, what retrieval augmented generation does. You retrieve the highlights and then you augment the prompt and generate. Yeah, just for summarization. Um, so it is uh, right now the primary way that most people are building with LLMs, uh, especially I think like one of the one of the most common interfaces that uh, people end up building are chatbots and the way to get like really performant chatbots that actually work for your context are with retrieval augmented generation there aren't really too many alternatives right now to do this outside of maybe fine-tuning your model and even then you know um, retrieval augmented generation like even with fine-tuning it still might be helpful to do retrieval augmented generation on top of that um that's you, you wanna, just to jump into this, so there's this rag, this fine tuning, uh, mm -hmm. again, like to very much to uh, like you just did to make this uh, interesting to a broad group of people. What, do, what does fine tuning actually mean? Everybody's sort of heard the term, uh, mm -hmm. but what does it actually mean? Yeah, 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 absolutely. So fine tuning um, used to be. Um, for the longest time, like before prompt engineering entered the scene, fine tuning was the primary way to make machine learning models like work for you. Uh, and the idea was that typically in research, uh, you know, uh, research labs or academia or other folks would end up designing like architectures, which are, you know, like uh, ways of configuring like, you know, uh, deep, deep learning neural networks together that like typically work really well for certain problems. And then you take that architecture as is, uh, start with like a random initialization of that architecture and then, you know, do a bunch of passes where you just input your data and then try to make that architecture work really, really well, like for your data. So that was like more traditional. That was, you know, what what training a deep learning model meant. Um, I think then we ended up like in the trajectory of building these models ended up getting to a point where the model sizes ended up just being so large and so massive uh, and the data that you'd need to actually get meaningful signal from, from the, those large architectures would end up being small, right? So your organization data would be much smaller uh, than the size of the internet, for example. Um, so then, you know, we ended up in the space where we started doing like a lot of pre-training. Uh, so you take these architectures, pre-train it on very, very large generic data sets. And then once they're pre-trained, you'd essentially like take the small amount of like custom organization data that you have. Uh, and then, you know, just like run a few passes uh, that, uh, you know, with, with like very low learning rates that allow you to, you know, like um, just kind of sharpen the models like to your specific data. Uh, so this kind of like double paradigm of like pre-trained mo pre models followed by fine tuning that you do yourself uh, ended up, you know, kind of emerging as these model sizes like grew pretty substantially. Um, yeah, so um, the key differences are fine tuning is, um, so RAG, for example, is a runtime thing. Uh, so at runtime, you're figuring out what the most relevant context is. At runtime, you're injecting it into the prompt, et cetera. Whereas fine tuning is, you know, like, a, um, like is, is, it's an offline process. So before you're able to like launch and re release your 
uh, your application or your model, you would typically, you know, spend like some time, uh, you know, figuring out what the right data that you want to fine tune is, uh, and then training your model on that data and, you know, doing a bunch of experiments to make sure that you are able to get like good model performance, et cetera. Uh, so that the, the level of investments ends up being like pretty different. Yeah. Great. Thank you very much for that. So um, if I'm an enterprise and I really want to deploy my own internal chatbot, let's say, um, and have uh, resources of engineers and um, I do that kind of like belt and suspender approach of doing both rag and fine tuning. Um, are they, are they, what, what does that mean in terms of hallucination? Are they benchmarks? Does that mean I'm like, I'm at like 5% of hallucination or 15% or like, how do people measure the severity of the problem? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I think you're kind of hitting the nail on like what the what the big uh, what the big like um, challenge in the space is right now, where evaluation is this uh, you know big open problem, and uh, we're we're at that point where we're already beyond where traditional academic metrics were, uh, and so you know it's kind of like the wild west a little bit out here. Um, in terms of like organizations that are building, you know doing this like two-step approach of first fine-tuning a model and then doing RAG on top of that, first um, props to them. Uh, <laughs> I think uh, it's it's definitely like, especially for fine-tuning, a big challenge ends up being, you know, just getting the data set, right? So for the last decade or so, we've heard that, you know, data is oil and uh, data-centric machine learning and, you know, just getting that data set ready and together ends up being, you know, um, a substantial investment. Obviously that investment often results in that lift uh, in model performance. And it allows you to work with, you know, much smaller models uh, that work better for your data that often have like much lower latencies. Uh, but you know, that that in order to get those results, you typically need to make that initial investment. Um, I think like where it, it's hard to quantify, like it's hard to give a blanket quantification of how much hallucination decreases by fine tuning. Uh, because it depends on, you know, the type of task that you're doing fine-tuning on. Um, so to make it more concrete, like um, there's different types of hallucinations. And depending on if your task is very, very structured versus very unstructured, and I'll get into that in a second, uh, you know, you might end up seeing like different lifts with fine-tuning. Um, so this is anecdotal. Uh, but like some behaviors I've seen in my work is that if you have a very structured task that involves like either generating code in a specific language or, you know, generating like uh, a specific like structured data set, like uh, sorry, a specific structured output, like a JSON or a CSV or something, you know, that with fine tuning uh, ends up being, you know, pretty, pretty effective. Um, if you have uh, an unstructured task where, you know, you essentially still want to do like question answering, but only on your data, uh, that typically requires, you know, a much bigger data set. Uh, and often it's sometimes like harder to get those data, that data curated as well, right? So depending on both the amount of data that you have for fine tuning and the type of the task, whether it's like structured generation versus unstructured text, uh, you know, you might end up seeing different lifts. So you might still like, it's very possible and likely that you're still going to run into hallucinations, even with fine tuning. It's just going to be, it's just going to understand like your task domain a little bit better. Um, so at the end of the day, you know, these models are, I mean, this is, um, uh, I don't personally think this is a hot take, but for some reason, this ends up being a spicy take, uh, which is that, you know, at the end of the day, these models are like next token predictors, which is, you know, like they kind of look at like what they've predicted until now, and then, you know, uh, figure out like what the next token they're on is. Um, and from that, like even with fine tuning, that fundamental behavior uh, remains the same, right? So the hallucinations happen uh, because of this behavior and uh, fine tuning kind of doesn't change that. Um, a very, this is kind of like a non-technical example I like using uh, to, to, you know, kind of uh, give an example of why this hallucination happens. Somebody uh, I know was asking one of these AI models for kid-friendly activities or family-friendly activities in some city that they were visiting. Uh, and as this model was generating a list of outputs, it essentially, one of the outputs it shared was, um, okay, go to the zoo, go to the X city zoo with your family and it's a good event. And then when they actually looked it up, that city never actually had that zoo, uh, but you know- But it could have. <laughs> yeah, I think the city's lagging, you know, the AI model, like once the AI model yes. has Creed, there must be a zoo. Uh, you know, the city planning should get on that. 
um yeah but the it, it's so conditioned to think about like okay kid kid friendly activities you know must include like a trip to the zoo it doesn't you know there's fine tuning won't make that go away right like fine tuning won't make it go away that okay a zoo doesn't actually exist um so hallucinations aren't removed by fine tuning um just as same reason that they aren't with rag like with rag you end up getting like more context and it's at runtime so it ends up being you know a little bit more concrete but it doesn't uh, completely eliminate fine tuning um, I don't want to, yeah, I, I always feel a little bit nervous sharing like numbers of like 5% or not, because it's so context dependent. Uh, but like in my work, and I'm keeping this very vague because it's so, um, uh, you know, different contexts, different applications are going to see different numbers, you know, around like um, 30% or so, uh, uh, you know, hallucinations like with RAG for a specific application. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And I, I assume the answer is, is is probably no. Actually, I don't know. Maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong. But like given the above, um, if I'm an enterprise and I'm thinking whether I want to, you know, work with uh, GPT four, which are ever other proprietary sort of um, you know API kind of system, versus uh, grabbing something of Hugging Face, uh, open source, and just uh, doing my own work and or Llama two or whichever. Um, is there, is there, are all those models created equal in terms of hallucination or is it like open source that can heavily customize, fine tune uh, to my own needs is less likely to hallucinate? Is there, is there a difference or, or it depends on what you do with them? Um, so always depends on what you do with them, but right now the models aren't equal. Uh, I think OpenAI is definitely leading the charge in terms of, you know, how effective, I guess just how flexible and generalizable the models are, uh, but like other players, including open source are quickly catching up. Um, so, um, uh, let's see, um, I think there's, uh, I'm thinking of like a benchmark called Legal Bench, uh, definitely recommend like everybody goes and check it out. Um, legal Bench was a benchmark that was released on a myriad of legal tasks, like, you know, any any task that, you know, could be augmented or automated by AI in the legal domain. Uh, you know, there's like some benchmark for that in this like legal bench, um, you know, set. And in that, they essentially like evaluated a bunch of models, including open source. And then some of, you know, you would typically see that like open AI based models tend to do very well on these tasks like they haven't seen before that are, you know, newly created benchmarks. So I think open AI and specifically GPT-4 is pretty powerful and potent in that, in, in terms of its flexibility. Um, in terms of um, open source models, there's this one uh, um, study that came out recently. It was a blog actually published by the AnyScale team. Would also definitely recommend like folks go out and check that out. Um, it was essentially a blog that looked at like summarization, and it, uh, you know, if I'm remembering correctly, it was hallucinations in summarizations and evaluating hallucinations and summarization while using GPT-4, which once again is the leading model out there, versus Llama 2 fine-tuned on some data set, uh, and they ended up finding that like after fine-tuning Llama 2. Um, a, the cost of running Llama 2 was much cheaper and the performance was comparable with GPT 3.5, if I remember correctly. Again, I'm kind of getting this off the top of my head. So, uh, you know, please forgive any inconsistency. This is great. Well, we'll link it in the, in the show notes. But that was yeah, great. yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Um, so the, the interesting takeaway there was like straight out of the bat, if you just use Llama 2 directly, I don't think you could get like comparable performance, you know, with GPT 3.5 or 4 today. Uh, but like with fine tuning, if you make that investment in curating your data set, in running that fine tuning job uh, and then serving it, you know, then you're able to like on some of these tasks have these comparable performance. So I think that's where the strength lies, uh, which is, you know, the like if you like if you're able to make that investment, then, you know, the technology ends up being like cheaper to run long term and you end up kind of having more control over it. Um, so that's how I would kind of like generally think about the differences. Yeah. Okay, great. Uh, all right, so jumping into guardrails um, more specifically. So tell us about the general approach. Um, and then after that, I'd, I'd love to actually jump under the hood and go into, you have actually concepts of guard and concepts of, of rails. I'd love to uh, talk about this, but let, let's start with a general um, idea of, of, of what it is that you're building. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, absolutely. So I think like the core insight that we had was that the models are insufficient by themselves, right? Uh, the models are great and really performant and you can fine tune them and do a bunch of other things. Uh, but at the end of the day, what you really need is that the final like outcome that you're getting from the model like fits within the constraints of your systems, right? And those constraints might be accuracy or hallucination or they might be like all of these other failure modes that we talked about, you know, early on. Um, so the key insight was like, yes, you can use whatever model you want. But then at the end of the day, you'd want to make sure that all of these like functional risks or harms that you care about, which is that there shouldn't be any hallucination. If I'm sharing some information to my end customer, I shouldn't ever be misrepresenting what I have or what I'm building to the customer. Or I shouldn't be saying any, or my chatbot shouldn't be saying anything that's embarrassing to my company, right? Uh, these are like all of the areas and you can add this to the prompt, but at the end of the day, you'd want to like have independent systems that check to see if any of those things are violated and make sure that if they are, then you know you have like a very like flexible set of policies to um, mitigate and uh, you know just kind of stop that harm from occurring, right? Um, so that was kind of the general idea of guardrails, where a it works on a layer which you know surrounds the core LLM and therefore allows you to you know like have much safer guarantees um, on top of you know the outputs that you're getting from the LLMs. And B is that you know it it basically kind of like um, takes what is at the end of the day, very flexible general purpose models and make sure that whatever custom criteria, custom rules that you have either from your organization or the domain that you're working in, you're able to take those rules um, and you know implement them and execute them in code, right? Which is you're taking a general model of the internet and making sure that it doesn't violate any policies that are internal to your organization, perhaps. Uh, so that was kind of the general idea behind guardrails, which is that you would need this independent validation and verification layer uh, to make sure that you can actually use this use these models into production. Um, so that and do it and do it at runtime. Exactly, and do it at runtime. Uh, I think the runtime part is critical because, like, once again, no amount of offline evaluation, you know, like gives you that confidence that you need for shipping a lot of these things like into production. Yeah. So how, how does that work? Yeah, uh, great question. Um, so I think how we, um, uh, what the framework offers is like a few different set of tools to kind of make this problem, you know, uh, tractable. Um, so the first is the concept of runtime guards. Uh, what runtime guards do are they kind of surround your AI uh, AI model and make sure that you know any any of these functional concerns that you have are verified. So a runtime guard is typically uh, created by combining a few different like validators together, and those validators typically check for you know like each constraint. Uh, so for what's, example, a what's a validator? Yeah, so a validator uh, kind of like is an independent check uh, that you know like analyzes your output and scores it for one particular risk area. So any one specific risk turns into one specific validator. So for example, hallucination. Um, you might have, you know, this one risk of hallucination and making sure that any outputs that's generated is, you know, the, true given the source that you gave it. Um, so what a valid, like what the hallucination validator will do, we call it uh, provenance. Uh, so what the provenance validator does is it makes sure that, you know, there's no hallucination in the output that you're generating, right? Um, there might be one more validator that is around, uh, let's say, um, uh, not mentioning any peer institutions. So if you're a, if you're you know if you're a company, you don't want somebody to ask your question about like okay, who's the best like uh, I don't know who's the best like uh, uh, tennis shoe company and you know your Nike and somebody else like says Asics or something right. So that's just embarrassing. So there might be some reference of not making. Um, a reference to your peer institution. And so that would be one specific validator. Another validator might end up being, you know, just a very, very simple regex rule. Uh, so making sure that you're only allowed to answer um, in, in outputs that match like a specific pattern, right? So if you want to say, if you're extracting some information about an interest rate, you always know that an interest rate kind of looks something like this. And so you want to make sure that, you know, you're extracting information that fits that criteria. So all of these end up being, you know, very independent checks that check for, um, um, you know, accuracy or performance or uh, private information or hallucinations or, uh, you know, compliance constraints. And they're, you know, um, a whole catalog 
catalog of validators that we have in guardrails. And you can like take them, mix and match them, configure them, and combine them together into a guard that runs at runtime and makes sure that you know you're not like all of those criteria that you specifically want to check for, none of those criteria is validated essentially. Sure. And so double cl double clicking on the provenance one. Um, so how, how does that uh, work? Like you, you go search into the source of truth and you match the answer against the whatever comes out of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So provenance is uh, provenance is really exciting. We've done a bunch of work on provenance, uh, which is you know available in the open source. Um, so provenance, how it works, is that any sentence or any utterance from the LLM should have some provenance that establishes, okay, this is the source where the sentence or utterance came from, right? Uh, so it's most effective in RAG or retrieval augmented generation systems, where you give the LM some context and you wanna make sure any output is coming only from the context and not from the general um, like world knowledge that the LLM was trained on, right? Uh, and this actually ends up being like a pretty, even in practice, so for example, it ends up being a pretty like tactical problem. So you often see that, um, you know, even after you give it like some relevant context, if somebody asks a question, it'll like have some sentences from that context, but it also has, you know, like general definitions of what, what something means, you know, from the internet. And so it'll add those like, you know, uh, sentences in there, which ends up being like, you know, misleading to your customers. Um, so how the provenance validator, uh, you know, mitigates this risk is it looks at like your output sentence by sentence, and then using a bunch of different like machine learning techniques establishes that from your source, with this level of confidence, your sentence came from, you know, this part of your standard operating procedure, or this section of your help center articles, or this section of your document, et cetera. So overall, that allows you to, you know, as a developer, or as somebody building this application, it allows you to A, filter out any hallucinated sentences, uh, and only give the sentences that, you know, came from something that you know to be true, and you know your company can support. Uh, and B, it also allows you to, you know, like, um, um, build like basically build interesting analytics on top of the threshold. So you can say that typically I tend to find that, you know, I only have like 80% confidence, even in the sentences I know to be true. And so how can I, you know, like iterate on my prompt, et cetera, so that I ge generally end up increasing that confidence. Yeah. Okay. And you mentioned uh, machine learning techniques. It sounds like it's um, a little bit of a mix of like some of it, some validators maybe rules-based and others machine learning-based. Is that is that fair? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's actually even more. So um, rules-based, machine learning-based. Um, we also um, sometimes, you know, hook up like when possible, when it makes sense for the validator, we hook up into some external system. So for example, uh, we've done a bunch of work in text-to-SQL uh, and we found that, you know, our text-to-SQL validators were very, very competitive with like what the state of the art is using generic off-the-shelf models. And so how text-to-SQL works is um, we take your, uh, we essentially create a sandbox of your database using your SQL configuration. And then any SQL code that is generated by the LLM is first run against that sandbox. Any errors are corrected. And then we allow the LLM to fix those errors, you know, uh, using the using the techniques available in guardrails. Uh, so okay. that, uh, you know, getting like a much bigger lift over directly using the LLMs. Yeah. Okay. So, so some of it is a little bit uh, machine learning to correct machine learning. So it's it's, it's uh, like how, how do you think about this? Because like the the, the goal is to get to one hundred percent presumably like accuracy, but you have something that's not at 100%, you use something that's typically not 100% either to correct it. Uh, so how, how, how do you think about the getting to that 100% or, or can one eventually get to 100%? Yeah, yeah, I think it's a, it's a great question, honestly. And it's also like the key, uh, key uh, kind of um, limitation of working with machine learning, which is like 100% is almost never achievable. Uh, and so in practice, what you end up doing is like a trying to with an individual model, trying to improve performance as much as possible by training on better data, by using better techniques and doing a bunch of other things. Uh, and B, and this is, you know, the this is like one of the things that guardrails really hooks into is using this machine learning kind of like concept of ensembling models together. Um, and what that typically I think my favorite way of explaining 
what that does is that you can think of, of ensembling as stacking a bunch of different like sieves on top of each other where each sieve has, you know, holes in like different areas, right? So the stack of different sieves ends up being so that, you know, uh, your holes are all like non-overlapping. And so you end up getting something that is greater than the sum of its parts and ends up being, you know, like more watertight and more like correct. So ensembling kind of works in a different way, which is you have like your large, uh, you know, large language models such as OpenAI or Anthropic or Cohere or, you know, um, uh, Llama 2, um, but that has like specific failure modes. You combine it with, you know, these guardrails and validators that also under the hood use machine learning, but they have like maybe some other different failure modes. And when you run like this whole ensemble together, you end up getting something that is, you know, much more performant and tends to like have much, much higher robustness compared to just using the model by itself. Um, yeah, so I think in general, this idea resonates a lot with, um, um, you know, this um, recent like uh, blog and writing from, you know, the Hazy Research Lab at Stanford, which I also recommend, you know, people check out, which is LLMs and generative AI really help solve like um, the first mile problem in ML, right? Uh, but the last mile problem, which is like, how do you take this gen generic generalizable technology and make it work like specifically for your use cases uh, and for your actual application. Like you need other more traditional ML tools uh, to make sure that you have the, you know, you have the guarantees and you have the uh, reliability that you typically need. Yeah. How does a guardrails manifest? We, we, we talked about failure modes earlier, but sort of as a, like generically across um, RAG and other things, like how, how does that manifest if I, um, if the, if the, if the chatbot, for example, mentions the name of, um, uh, you know, ASICs in the shoe example, what happens? Like, do I, do I control this or does it just say, uh, does it kill the answer? Like how, how does it fail? What's my sort of end user experience? Yeah, yeah, I think that's a great question. Uh, we thought about this a bunch. So the open source supports a bunch of different policies on failures uh, that you know allow you to configure your level of risk. So in the extreme, uh, what we do, what we support is this reasking you know strategy that you know guardrails kind of uh, supports really really well, where it hooks into the LLM's ability to self heal. Uh, or correct their own outputs if you give them enough context, right? So how that works is that let's say you you have an LM output and it fails the validator that says you can't talk about you know your competitor. Um, and so what what guardrails would do or guardrails reasking would do is it would automatically construct a new prompt um, and only give it the information it needs to be able to correct its output. And then you know you send your prompt back to your LM get a new output and more often than not that output ends up being you know correct so once again it's not a hundred percent you know it's not it, it doesn't work a hundred percent of the times but it does end up working like pretty substantially in a lot of outcomes so that is like one of the strategies of how do you handle failures but there's you know a bunch of other things available including programmatic fixes when possible uh right so if there's any hallucinated text that is detected you just filter out that specific text and don't throw out the rest of the answer. Um, in some other cases, you know, you can like alert a human and then bring a human that re to review that output and, you know, make sure that like the, only when a human okays it, do you send that output forward? And there's a bunch of other like uh, filters around like responding with like canned responses uh, or, you know, falling on like other fallback systems, uh, raising an exception, et cetera. So like all of those options are completely configurable and you can set them like on a, like on a validator level. Yeah. So uh, for example, like it might end up being that, you know, if you have, um, if you're mentioning a competitor, that is dangerous enough where you'd much rather like make that extra trip to the LLM rather than, you know, sending that response out. And so you can configure that policy just for the competitor check validator. Uh, a bunch of other things like, um, um, you know, I don't know, always ending a chatbot response with like, thank you or please, uh, right? Maybe it's it's bad, but it's not as bad that you'd much rather like answer the question faster rather than make that extra trip. So you might, you know, maybe like uh, programmatically like inject that at the end of the sentence. And so you, for each validator, you can like configure what the policy needs to be. Yeah. As all of this happens at runtime, um, how should one or how do you all think about um performance, latency, does it have any impact? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. For um, I think that's a you know, there's no like um, there's basically no free lunch in terms of you know uh, safety. So typically, like running these validators, like ends up you know incurring some additional cost. Uh, so there's uh, both in terms of you know like latency as well as you know compute or you know making another call to the uh, LLM, etc. So we generally think about it in two ways, um, which is like one is a lot of the validators are only useful when you have these like specific runtime constraints, right? And we've done a bunch of optimizations to make it like as fast as possible, including being able to like parallelize all of these validators uh, so that, you know, you end up like only getting like the minimum runtime that you need. Um, I think the second thing that we do is um, essentially configure a bunch of different options that allow you to trade off uh, you know, cost, quality, performance, et cetera, so that you end up getting something that works within your constraints, right? So for example, for hallucinations, um, we essentially have like multiple implementations of those hallucinations, uh, hallucination, uh, you know, uh, uh, detectors or like the provenance validators uh, that allow you to say like, okay, if I want the really, really great performing outcome, I might need that extra cost and that extra time. But if I'm okay with, you know, like if I don't have as strict constraints around hallucinations, I can do with the really fast, but maybe not that good, you know, performance. Um, so this is also very in line with machine learning. And in machine learning, you know, like the best models are typically like really large uh, and end up having that extra latency. So I think we kind of get some of the similar principles in into guardrails as well, yeah. Right. So you, you're early in the journey of, of building the, the company um, at the same time, very active and shipping. And uh, congratulations, by the way, like I saw you release the uh, 0.2.0 version uh, just a few days ago. So that's uh, fantastic. Um, what, what's the role of open source uh, for this business? And the, 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 the question behind the question is... Um, you know, open source is a great way to build community and users and all those things. Like occasionally open source or maybe what it was originally was like you had a bunch of people that was that were helping to build uh, parts of this. So um, is there like an inf a very large number of validators and part of the idea is that the community is going to build some of those validators? Like how do you how do you think about um, community, not just from a go-to-market perspective, but from a product development perspective? Yeah, yeah, I think that's a great question. Uh, I think the community is definitely contributing like a number of these validators. I think um, uh, I'm not sure when the episode will go out, but like this morning, you know, we had like a contribution for like a regex check. Uh, so making sure any output that you have like matches a specific pattern that you predefine, uh, which was, you know, com uh, contributed by the community, et cetera. So people, uh, it's very interesting because like the applications are, are so wide and varied. And then based on that, people end up, you know, making like specific types of contributions. So I think we're definitely focused on that. I also do think that um, the um, like what the open source really ends up doing as, uh, you know, a framework is taking down this very abstract problem of what it means to do safe AI development, right? Like it's it's a very abstract problem. It's almost an academic problem to some degree. And it takes that and it breaks that down into, you know, an engineering problem really, right? Like, okay, if these are the risk areas that you care about, this is exactly how you mitigate and safeguard against those risk areas, right? So it ends up like um, having like a much more like, uh, uh, like these safety measures that are grounded in code rather than just in policy. Um, and so that I feel like is is a big value of the open source. And that's also, you know, why a lot of people like use the open source, uh, in addition to the fact that, you know, it ends up providing them like much higher performance and safety and everything. Um, so I think like that um, allows us to kind of, you know, um, um, it, it allows us to kind of shape how safe AI development is is done in industry, right? So it, it allows us to basically kind of build these systems that are, you know, much more reliable using techniques or frameworks. Um, I, I guess using the architecture stack that guardrails kind of lays out. Um, so that ends up being like a lot of the value. Yeah. How big is safe AI as an industry? Um, and, and, you know, maybe, maybe it'd be interesting uh, for, for people here that want to learn if you could mention like who else you think is doing interesting work and I'm, I'm not uh, necessarily uh, asking to mention competitors or anything but I know researchers like papers um, uh, or, or people doing great work in, in, in big tech uh, but in that sort of safety AI safety space mm -hmm. yeah I think it uh, 
safe, like safe and responsible AI has always existed as an industry, but uh, is you know obviously with the explosion of uh, generative AI that we're seeing and the proliferation of these applications like becoming much more relevant. Um, so there's a lot of like interesting work from a bunch of different organizations. Uh, I do think the the OGs <laughs> in the space were like Microsoft's uh, you know responsible AI uh, team. I think coincidentally they're also called the Rail team. Uh, no affiliation between like our Rails and like Microsoft Rails, but uh, I think there's some of the teams that you know pioneered the um, uh, a lot of the really amazing work that Microsoft is doing, leading the charge in generative AI and making sure that all of those products are kind of, you know, safe and responsibility de uh, responsibly developed. Um, so I think like that is pretty exciting to me. Uh, I think in research, there's a lot of like exciting work, um, both from the security side, as well as from the AI side. Um, so um, I uh, definitely recommend, you know, Percy Liang uh, at Stanford. So his work, his team, for example, does a bunch of work in like verifiability, uh, which is pretty exciting. Um, there's also, um, so I think from the security side, there's also some really exciting work by, um, you know, um, uh, this professor, Leon Durchinsky, I'm probably going to mess up the name pronunciation, but uh, he's doing really fantastic work on, you know, from the security side about like how to safeguard LLMs. He's a professor at uh, University of Washington. Uh, so I think like those are some of the academic side, which uh, are pretty promising and exciting to me. Yeah. Okay, very cool. Thank you so much for sharing this. So maybe to, um, to close, uh, taking a, a step back, um, and still, you know, in a, in a, in a, as, as part of a general desire to, to make this educational for, for folks, uh, you know, you, you're navigating uh, in all the right uh, crowds, um, you know, as I was preparing, prepping for this. So you're partnering with Langchain, uh, you were doing like a hugging face meetup, uh, you're partnering with uh, Weights and Biases, we actually had Lucas on this uh, podcast a few weeks ago. Um, who, who, who do you think does interesting work in... Uh, generative AI these days, um, maybe beyond those those names, which are sort of the some of the obvious ones. Uh, but you know whether those are friends or colleagues or people that you uh, sort of um, follow from afar uh, that that people should look up or research or like any, anything that comes to mind. Big company, small company. Um, yeah, I think that's a fantastic question. I think we're also at a point in time where there's, it honestly feels like a fire hose and it's like, you're keeping up with this fire hose and, yes. uh, you know, just getting swamped every day. Um, so let's see, I think on the, uh, on the company side, I do think like Llama Index is really, uh, really cool. Um, I think like, like I said, drag is the way to build, uh, you know, these models today. And like Llama Index is again, taking a very, you know, like grounded approach to doing that. So I think they're a pretty cool company. Yes. Um, and we had, we had Jerry on this podcast also a few weeks ago, if people are interested, you can go back a few episodes and, uh, and, and, and check out our, our uh, great conversation with Jerry, the founder of Llama Index. Yeah. Yeah. I think Jerry's, Jerry's fantastic. Um, I, you know, obviously I think you mentioned like a lot of other fantastic people. I think like Langchain is obviously leading the charge. I do think like Langsmith is a great, you know, is a, they're making a great push around Langchain. And I think that's awesome. Um, weights and biases. Um, I've, I've long been a fan of weights and biases and I think they, they know that as well. Um, you know, I've been using it for many years in addition to, you know, my ML work, like over, over all these past years. Uh, I think specifically in generative AI, um, I do think that like all of the foundation model companies are still, um, you know, uh, they're still like pretty much um, like it's very hard to, you know, get away from the fantastic work that they're doing. So um, OpenAI, obviously, you know, like I said, like their, their models are kind of like really competitive, but Anthropic with their constitutional AI, I think that was a really fantastic approach to thinking about AI safety in a very principled manner. Uh, and I think Cohere, you know, I think Cohere is doing a really fantastic job where think taking a much more like uh, much more kind of like enterprise focused approach to thinking about, you know, generative AI. So uh, they recently had this model release called Coral, I think, which is a pretty fantastic um, implementation. I think their re-ranking model is something that I know, uh, you know, a bunch of people uh, I've, uh, you know, spoken with like use in their actual systems. Um, uh, I think some other companies that are really exciting to me from the, sorry, some other academic work that is really exciting to me are, um, 
how do you take what is now the limitation of generative AI uh, and what's basically what's going to come next on the horizon, right? Um, so on that, uh, you know, a lot of the work, once again, from the Hazy Research Lab um, and like TreeDAO on, you know, um, like a lot of like flash attention, et cetera, which makes, you know, which allows you to train models with like much longer context and, you know, allow you to iterate on like the inference time speeds of these models. I think that's pretty awesome. Uh, also Albert Gu um, at uh, CMU, you know, and his work on like S4 models and state space models are, is, is I think like really promising. Um, so we definitely look at like what's kind of coming next on the horizon in terms of, you know, like what's next beyond transformers essentially, yeah. Okay, fantastic. Um... Where can uh, people find you online? <laughs> um, Twitter is, uh, I'm, I'm fairly active on Twitter. Uh, you can follow my personal account, which is Shreya R, uh, or the Guardrails account. Uh, I think we both talk about the exact same thing. So, <laughs> um, so either works. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn uh, with my name, Shreya Rajpal. Uh, and then also check out, you know, the Guardrails website and the GitHub. So guardrailsai.com uh, or, you know, the GitHub ad. Uh, if you just search for Guardrails AI, you'll, you'll, it'll be the top result. Yeah. Very cool. And presumably you're recruiting. Uh, who are you looking for? Yeah, yeah, we're actively recruiting right now. Um, if they're amazing machine learning engineers, uh, please reach out to us uh, at contact at guardrailsai.com. Uh, we're also looking for, you know, folks uh, on the open source. Uh, so, uh, you know, um, people have that have experience like working with open source communities. So same email address, contact at guardrailsai.com. Great. And uh, you can you can add a slash uh, mad podcast so we get a twenty five percent placement fee. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right, this has been a wonderful conversation, Shreya. Really appreciate it, and uh, this is super interesting. I'm uh, very excited to see how you all uh, do in the next uh, few years because uh, it sounds like you're focusing on a super important problem with a really interesting approach. So I'm uh, excited for the for the next steps. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the MAD podcast and telling us all about it. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks again for inviting me and really enjoyed our conversation. Yeah. Bye. Yeah, bye. Thanks for joining us for the MAD podcast. We're back here every Wednesday with new conversations with leaders in the machine learning, AI, and data space and if you like this show, you can also find the video recording of not only this episode, but many, many more over on the Data Driven NYC YouTube channel. Thanks again and catch you next week.